Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the right thing to do, even though it's a hard thing to do. Of course, I'll give your love to, to Amy and Viv and Hank. All right, love you, Mom. We'll talk on Thanksgiving. Bye-bye. Reach out to your loved ones this Thanksgiving. Just be with your loved ones this Thanksgiving. And it was last Thanksgiving. Weren't supposed to be anywhere, right? But I guess we could be with our loved ones this Thanksgiving. Thank you, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Thank you. <laughs> How's it going, everybody? Your Ben Jarofsky Show for Tuesday, November 23rd, is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, it's true, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com, and if you want to help out this program, you can, ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y. It is Tuesday, November 23rd. And pre-recorded from back in downstate Illinois and his attic, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello everybody, Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Focus Group Tuesday and here's why. Got a great show today, ladies and gentlemen. That's not why we're calling this Focus Group Tuesday. We got a great show today. I'm looking at my first guest, Anna Foyer, uh, from the Art Institute Employees uh, Union Organizing Effort. Been meaning to get uh, some of these Art Institute employees on the show for a long time. Finally connected with the great Anders Lindahl. Uh, and uh, so uh, Anna Foyer will be joining us to talk about that effort. And then in the second part of the show, uh, Ace Attorney Jim Coogan will come on and we're going to do the breakdown A to Z on the uh, Rittenhouse case. Very dispassionate discussion. I'm going to put aside my usual uh, histrionics, okay? Uh, I'm not going to wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm going to just, just be as dispassionate as I can as I analyze what went down. Uh, last week with that verdict, as uh, folks know, uh, if you listen to the show over the weekend, the, the weekend drop, uh, the verdict came out. And I was doing an interview with Ramana Hussein and just blew my mind uh, that uh, he was acquitted. I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. All my lefty friends, what did I say? <laughs> Lefties, man, you guys are a freaking trip, man. Whenever I was like, I'm, I'm upset about something, they'll go, are you really surprised? You know, like lefties, like. What I'm not supposed to, I don't know if that's like a defense mechanism you use to, to like shield yourself from the reality of the world you lived in. But they, whenever I'm like, ah, oh God, I'm so upset. Are you really surprised? <laughs> Love lefties. Been a lefty my whole life. Uh, Focus Group Tuesday, I call it that because I had a laugh out loud, ladies and gentlemen. I was reading my beloved Bright One, home delivered every day, the Chicago Sun Times. 
And uh, there was an article by uh, Lynn Sweet talking about this Orland Park uh, mayor. Uh, he's a Republican. Keith uh, Pacow is going to run uh, for Congress. And he's gonna, first, he's going to try to win the Republican primary. I don't think anybody's going to be running against him uh, for the right to face off against the winner of the Democratic primary. And that would be uh, for 10 trivia points. I'll ask my guests. Do you know? No, they don't know. Uh, Marie Newman or uh, Sean Caston. So that's going to be a battle, all right, between uh, Marie Newman and Sean Cast, the two Democrats put in the same district. They're going to battle it out for the right to uh, be the Democratic uh, nominee to face this guy, Keith Bacon. I was just, this is why I call a focus group. So that's like a, a it leans Democrat district in the suburbs uh, that the Democrats should win. But if the Republicans can scare enough people up there with their, uh, like, I don't know, like the boogeyman type campaigns that they run, uh, they could eke out a victory. But you got to stay away from controversial issues that may, uh, what, push swing voters away from you. One of which is Paul Gassar, the uh, Arizona congressman who uh, tweeted out uh, a meme sh- uh, showing him killing AOC, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez. So they, he was there was a censure vote in the Congress last week. Uh, the Democrats, a party line vote. Democrats voted to censor him. Only two Republicans joined the Democrats. So here's the standards of the Republican Party. Apparently think it's okay uh, to call for one congressperson to kill a Democratic congressperson. Oh, it's just a joke, huh? Uh, anyway, uh, so they asked old boy uh, Picao, he wants to be the congressman, what he thought, how he would have voted. And this was his response. Asked his position on censoring Kassar, Pakao said, quote, he has not looked at that issue at all, end of quote, and did not have a stand since it has, quote, absolutely zero impact on my region. Way to take a stand, big feller. What? <laughs> what a joke, man. Are you kidding me? Dude, you could never run a podcast. Every day when you have a podcast, you got to take a stand on a controversial issue. It's kind of like 101 of it all. Oh, boy, would be like if you had a podcast, doesn't affect any of my residents. What? They don't live in the United States of America where you have a sitting U.S. congressman threatening to kill another congressman. It doesn't impact them at all. You know what he's saying to you folks in the 6th Congressional District? He's saying you're really stupid. That's what he's saying. And if you elect him as your congressperson, I think he would be right. All right. Enough of that. I want to bring on Anna Foyer, uh, who is an employee. I want to say, uh, Anna, first of all, Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. And I want to say you're a librarian, but I know you're going to explain to me that you're not absolutely positively a librarian, uh, but... For better or worse, you work in the library at the Art Institute. Am I correct in that? That is correct, yes. The Ryerson and Burnham Libraries. Okay. So before we get uh, into the issues of the uh, uh, the unionization effort at the Art Institute, I just want to say this to all the people who run the Art Institute, people sit on the board of directors, people who are employers. Uh, Anna has a First Amendment protector right to say what she wants on my show. Okay, guys. Now, I know you are uh, believe in the Constitution. I know you believe that uh, employees who are trying to organize a union have a right to speak as to why they want to join the union and what the issues are at play. And you do not believe in a totalitarian society where people are punished for saying uh, what they believe. This is still America. Right. Art Institute employees and board members. All right. Now that we have that clear, we'll begin uh, the conversation with Ed. Just have to say that, Ed. I do that with a lot of my guests who come on the show, working people, um, 
people who work for the, the city of Chicago say I'm Holloway. Shout out to you because I'm always worried that some overzealous boss will try to punish an employee, try to show how tough I am. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I appreciate you doing that because people think that we're in the year 2021 and there's not fear associated with exercising our rights as employees, but it's definitely there. I mean, we've encountered talking to people a lot of fear, fear of retaliation, fear of them being put on the chopping block. So I appreciate you establishing that we do have rights. It is yes. not not ever a wasted effort to remind people of that. No, and I will always remind people of that. Uh, all right. So um, let's start and talk a little bit about uh, what a unionization effort is. We'll start with the basics. Um, who are the employees that are trying to form a union? How many of them are they roughly and what do they do? Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, so we uh, in the Art Institute of Chicago Workers United or AICWU, which is the name of our union, we're bringing together workers from both the museum and the school in some ways. We're separate institutions in a lot of ways that are fundamentally important. We are the same institution. So our total uh, membership, we're trying to get around about 600 people as part of our bargaining unit. And that includes both employees of the museum and the school. And uh, we want broad and deep representation from this union. So, you know, there are certain people who are not legally allowed to be part of a union. So, you know, managers people with access to confidential information, but we want everyone else to be part of this union. So we have art handlers, custodians, curators, educators, frontline staff in member engagement and at the shop. So, you know, all of these different jobs contribute to making the museum and the school what it is. And so every one of us deserves to have a voice in how our institutions are run. And what was the motivation uh, for embarking on this unionization effort? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different reasons that people come together to form unions that are the same across workplaces. Um, but for us, we actually started this process right before the pandemic happened. So while a lot of these issues have been exacerbated and highlighted by the pandemic, they've been ongoing for years. One of the main issues is pay. There have been a lot of promises over the years to make our pay competitive with no improvement. We just see, you know, every two, three, five years, another study is coming out to see how they can improve it. And then there's nothing really that comes out of it unless the city of Chicago mandates a pay raise. And then, of course, there's plenty of money for people to get raises. Another issue that we have is being fully staffed. We've seen it happen over the years where our staffing is reduced and reduced and reduced. And given the uh, experience that we've had through the pandemic, that has become even more of an issue. You know, we, in an all staff meeting, I asked James Rondeau how they were planning to bring us back to being a fully staffed museum. And he asserted very confidently that we are fully staffed. And I had coworkers laugh out loud at that. You know, just a couple weeks ago, we got an email from an executive begging, begging for help with art installation. There was something that needed to be done for an upcoming exhibit. And all the people whose job is installing artworks for exhibitions were too busy working on other exhibitions. So that was, you know, a call that went out desperate for volunteers to spend their time away from their own work, doing work that, you know, other people should be hired to do because that's their expertise. And the most fundamental issue that we're grappling with is that we don't have a say in how our workplace is run. You know, we show up here every day. This is the kind of place where people 
have been working longer than I've been alive. And the appreciation that we deserve for the expertise that we bring, the dedication that we bring, it's not there. And it's manifested in, you know, the issues that I just mentioned and many more. So to just feel like we actually have a say and that we're a priority in this place where we've chosen to spend the days of our lives is an incredibly important underlying issue that touches on numerous different things that we're hoping to address. You mentioned James Rondeau, excuse my ignorance. And I'm just on behalf of all my listeners, who is James Rondeau? Uh, he is the president and director of the museum. So the school has its own director and he's our director on the museum side. All right. Uh, you talk about the basic bread and butter issue uh, is pay. And uh, so if you form a union, would you be able to then uh, ne- negotiate a contract uh, which would set give you a raise and set uh, t- uh, uh, salary standards for the co- next few years? Absolutely. Yeah, that is certainly something that we're hoping to address in our contract when it comes time to negotiate our contract. And you know, this is one of the things where uh, the the anti-union tactics that the museum is using and are shared by bosses across industries come into play. They keep insinuating that, you know, maybe things won't be better with a union contract. But if you look at the numbers, if you look at the statistics comparing unionized to non-unionized workplaces, there is an associated pay increase, sometimes a pretty significant one. And it's especially true for art museums where we're often asked to work on goodwill as opposed to, you know, a standard of living that anyone should expect. I will just put this out. This is me speaking, uh, not Anna. I know of no, no uh, management official in any institution, in any, in any corporation in America who does not go into a job without bargaining on his or her contract. I don't know. If, I guarantee you whoever runs the field museum, the art museum, the U, museum of science industry had a lawyer, had a lawyer that sat down at that table with whoever wanted to hire him or her. And they cut a deal and they go, well, you know, <laughs> my, uh, uh, imp- uh, my car, my client here is worth a lot more money than you're putting. So a union is effectively like that lawyer. That- Absolutely. James Rondeau or whoever hired. So if it's good for James Rondeau, I think it's good for uh, Anna Foyer. And that's just Ben Jarofsky speaking. Okay. Uh, All right, uh, Anna, you mentioned uh, anti-union tactics. I'm a little disappointed in my beloved Art Institute uh, that they would employ anti-union tactics against their workers I know my lefty friends continuing this theme go, Ben, are you really surprised? Uh, I am a little disappointed. And I want you to talk a little bit about some of the anti-union tactics that the benevolent leaders of the Art Institute have employed. Go ahead. Yeah, well, you know, because we are, a, you know, a liberal institution, as we like to present ourselves, a lot of the things that we've seen have been more Uh, covert as opposed to overt, but they are things that you see in any and all workplaces. You know, if they were truly neutral, they wouldn't be sending us all these emails with misinformation contained within them. Uh, An example that really stuck in my craw was from an email where they were talking about uh, other contracts that have been negotiated with AFSCME, who we are working with to form our union. And they said that the AFSCME contract with the Walker Art Center provided fewer vacation days than the Art Institute. And that's true. What is in the contract for the Walker Center, they do have fewer vacation days than we do. 
But what they failed to mention is that they didn't lose anything in that contract. The vacation days that are in that contract are the vacation days that they started with. They didn't lose a single thing in their contract at the Walker. They gained many things or kept them the same and protected them in the contract. And when it comes to the vacation days, sure, they didn't gain more, but they brought in more people to those benefits. They had a lot of part-time employees, gallery workers, who didn't get any kind of benefit that full-time employees did. And so one of the main things they were fighting for in their contract was to bring those employees into the same pool as everyone else so that they could have those benefits. So this is how misinformation works, right? It is true that they have fewer vacation days, but that's what they started with, and they can't be taken away now, and more people are enjoying them. So the very fact that the museum is relying on misinformation shows what poor standing they have to stand against us at all. You know, if they didn't feel like they needed to oppose us, they wouldn't be including that kind of thing in there. And then they come out and, you know, have these public public statements saying that they're being truly neutral. They're not engaging in anti-union tactics, but they are. And it's clear to anyone to see uh, if they have their eyes open to that. But unfortunately, a lot of people are being persuaded by misinformation like that. That's It's insidious. That's how it works, right? So we in AIC, we are just trying to engage with our coworkers, talk to them, and more importantly, listen to them because we are in this all together. And, you know, if the museum is fighting against it, it's because they know that we have power when we stand together. All right. So uh, why don't you explain to folks uh, exactly how the process. I remember it from our days at the Reader, uh, but why don't you take it, because uh, we organized our own uh, union at the Reader. Uh, so why don't you uh, uh, take it through? You said you've been doing this since before the pandemic. That's so deep, man. Anna, yeah. pandemic's been going on since March of 2020. <laughs> I know. Can you believe it? <laughs> Damn, man. Yeah, so so uh, talk, talk about process. that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and that's the thing. A lot of this process it happened behind the scenes and, of course, was complicated by the pandemic. I mean, like I said, a lot of it is just speaking to people. So, you know, we started before the pandemic and we were building support behind the scenes, which was made more difficult by being at home, not seeing the people you usually see. But when we went public in early August of this year, we had built that support. We knew that we had enough support in order to make this a successful union effort. And so after going public in August, then it became about getting cards signed and union cards. That's, you know, a pledge to stand with your coworkers that you will support the union and you will stand with everyone else in order to provide a better workplace for yourself and others. So getting cards signed, you know, that, that was difficult for a lot of people. That's where the fear comes in. They're worried that, you know, they will be seen as a union supporter and be fired or retaliated against. So, you know, a lot of that was assuaging people's fears that this is a legally protected action. And so because of that effort from my coworkers who are out there talking to people, uh, getting them to understand what the reality of a unionized workplace is, we were able to get a majority of support on those cards. So the NLRB, the National Labor, Labor Relations Board, they require you to have at least 30% in order to file for an election. And we had over 50%, a strong majority in both the school and the museum. So we asked both institutions to voluntarily recognize us. We said, listen, a majority of your employees want this. Please just let us organize and we can begin the negotiating of the contract. And of course they refused, you know, they want to draw this process out as much as they can. And so we officially filed for our election earlier this month. And uh, right now we're waiting for the election date to be set. It should be set 
within the next day or so, you know, there's all sorts of X number of business days between when a certain action is taken and when the next action needs to be started. So it's uh, since we filed for the election uh, and between then and when we actually get the date, it's been, you know, negotiations between the two sides lawyers. So the museum has their lawyers asked me is providing us with legal counsel. And it was going well, you know, the museum said that they wanted this to be, you know, painless process. They want to get this on the books and get it done. And then they stopped communicating with us. And when they finally came back, they reversed a lot of the positions that they took for, you know, no, no real reason other than they wanted to, you know, draw this out. So that's another uh, more insidious anti-union tactic. You know, it's, it's easy to just look at that and say, oh, well, lawyers being lawyers, you know, and I say that as someone raised by two lawyers. So <laughs> I feel like I can say that. But, you know, those lawyers on the museum side are working for the museum, right? So when they engage in tactics like that to kind of jerk us around, the museum is involved in that. It's not just the team of lawyers. So hopefully, you know, once we have our election date set, the museum won't engage in any further anti-union tactics trying to get people to vote no. They will be truly neutral. So that's what we're hoping for at this point. And I'd like to point out to the leadership of the Art Institute that the money you're spending on lawyers uh, could be money that you're spending on your staff. Just saying, you know. I mean, we, we've done our research on these lawyers, and they have, you know, half a dozen or so people who each break in hundreds of dollars an hour for their services. So, you know, I understand that everyone needs legal representation in this process because it is a legal process, but they brought in these people to do this from anti-union firms. Well, let me just correct you on that point. If they if they just openly said you, we recognize your union, they wouldn't have to hire any of those lawyers. That, that's true. Thank you for correcting me on that. That's absolutely true. <laughs> just want to point that out, Anna. Uh, they only went to, it's not like they had to go to those lawyers. And by the way, they, they didn't have to get the like the tough anti union. They, they, they already have lawyers, right? Yeah. So they brought in these anti union lawyers for this purpose. Yeah, just bring in the lawyer, the HR guy. Let him handle this. You don't need to bring in a lawyer. Um, all right. So the uh, the next step would be uh, an election. And uh, I can't remember, uh, so I apologize for not. Is it simple majority or does it have to be beyond a major- simple majority? And you simple recognize? Majority. Okay. Yeah. Uh, not putting pressure on you, Anna, and Art Institute employees. I'm just saying that the reader, we were unanimous in our election. Just saying. <laughs> Setting the standard high. We appreciate that. <laughs> I know. I was trash talking to the Tribune people. I always had the Tribune uh, union organizers on the show, and God bless them. They did uh, organize a union there. But I was just saying, they were so proud because I think they got 80%. I'm going, 80%? We had 100%. Uh, but that may just recognize <laughs> just a, a statement about where the reader was at at that time. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, people who are running the reader then who no longer are with the reader, no longer with the reader, I should say, this is old staff. We've been through so many people at the reader anyway. Uh, but they said at the time, they said that if a union would come between would like split up the family. I'm not, I'm just, I'm not making this up, Anna. This is what they said. So you have to think of a workplace as a family and like the editor is the mom or the dad and the employee is the child. And a union would have be like the child would have a representative and it would split up the family, would be divided. You'd be somewhere between dad and mom uh, and uh, junior. And I never really bought into that logic. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, well, maybe I want someone in between. <laughs> First of all, you're not my mom. Uh, <laughs> let's just get that part out of there. And um, 
but uh, that was the rhetoric they use. Is the Art Institute employing similar uh, arguments to to uh, win over its workers by saying a union would split us? We love you so much, and it would divide us from you. Oh, absolutely! They they won't even use our name. They won't even call us AIC Woo. In every email, they refer to us as AFSME. So they are consistently painting us as an outside third party who's going to come in. You know, they're constantly harping on the point. Oh well, you know. The AFSME representative, again, not a member of AIC Wu, but AFSME will disallow you from having any conversations with your supervisor. You know, if you want to be promoted, it has to go through AFSME. And <laughs> one of the responses that I've heard from that is, okay, so all the times I have gone to my supervisor and they've gone to their supervisor and said I should get a raise and were said, no, absolutely not. Uh, you know, maybe it would be helpful to have an outside person there to make sure that, you know, everything is done fairly and equitably. So they're absolutely engaging in that rhetoric. And I mean, to your point, you know, in a family, don't you also get to choose, you know, who you interact with and how you interact with them? And if we are a family, are we the children? Are we not allowed to have a seat at the table? We have to be off to the side without any reason or way to say anything important about how our lives are going? No. Absolutely not. We are just as important as anyone in the executive suite, you know, and this is our way to let them know that we are here and we deserve to not be stuck at the kids table waving and praying that somebody sees us that we need something. We deserve to be at the same table as James Rondo, as the executive people over on the school side, you know, that's that's our right. And there's no reason that it shouldn't be that way. Um, so it's it's very disappointing. We've tried to correct them numerous times to even just call us by our name. And, you know, they come up with all sorts of excuses about why it's appropriate to refer to us as ask me. So, you know, again, insidious anti-union uh, rhetoric is being used. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll offer this uh, observation. Um, ask me is despised. And I mean despised by many powerful uh, corporate leaders in the uh, state of Illinois, city of Chicago. The former governor, Bruce Rauner, uh, who was defeated in 2018, anti-union governor of the state of Illinois. If, if anybody has already forgotten him, put him out of your mind. Uh, and he hated Ask Me. And oh my God, he had like a nickname. I can't remember what it was. He made it up for Ask Me. And so he, 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 he branded Ask Me. So I'm sure he's brainwashed everybody on the Art Institute board. Oh, this is Ben speaking, not Anna. Okay, this is Ben speaking. Uh, <laughs> I got a First Amendment right. I'm sure he's brainwashed everybody against Ask Me. So that's why it's a tactic, uh, in my humble opinion. And just to ask me, ask me, ask me out there. Oh, and then, you know, people who hate, who buy into it. Uh, Jim Coogan has joined us, our next guest to join us. Always love when my guests show up on time. Uh, anyway, Anna. Uh, I believe that's a, that is a tactic. I believe you're absolutely correct. That is a branding tactic. Um, before uh, I close down my conversation with you, Anna, and bring on Jim to talk about the Kyle Rittenhouse case, I have to ask you this, and it's probably a, a this should really should be a longer conversation, and which we'll, we'll come back to this later because you're a delightful guest. I'd love to bring you back. But you, you organizing professionals. And I think I mentioned this to you before. I, when I'm looking at the union trend uh, in Chicago over the last 10 years, I mentioned this before we went on the air. I look at newspapers 
doing a lot of union organizing, uh, museums doing a lot of uh, union organizing. In my mind, uh, unions, when I was a kid, were like teamsters. They were uh, working class unions of, and not uh, college professional unions. And I'm seeing a trend now, obviously, over the last 10 years, uh, where professionals' uh, trades are unionizing. And uh, it's bringing the union fight into places I never would have. I would never imagine, for instance, Chicago Tribune in a million years, the editorial side of the Chicago Tribune would form a union. And yet they did. And so just briefly discuss that, Anna. Uh, Like what how do you see this in terms of being a quote unquote professional and being a union member? Do you see a contradiction between a college trained position and a union uh, organizing drive? I don't. Cultural workers are workers. Tech workers are workers. People who work at a newspaper are workers. We're all workers. And I I do agree that there has been historically the sentiment that, you know, the, the kind of person who would benefit from a union contract is someone who does dangerous and dirty work. And of course, they have historically gained from union contracts. But, you know, Every person who is setting out to earn a wage for themselves, to provide for their families, to contribute something worthwhile in order to gain that wage, we have rights. And these rights, they have been written in blood. And just because I don't have to go out on the street and buy, you know, fight mob hires like my great uncle did when he was trying to unionize Illinois Bell doesn't mean it's not a fight. And so the fact that there's pushback against museum workers organizing, against writers organizing, against tech workers organizing, it shows that all of our labor is valuable. And people don't want us to get the same value from that labor as they're getting from us. So it doesn't matter what job you have. If you are a worker, you have the same rights as any other worker in this country. So I appreciate that I'm living in a moment where people in my chosen industry are recognizing the power that they have, and I get to be part of ensuring that the rights of myself, my coworkers, everyone to come after us are respected. That's an incredibly important part of what we're doing here. All right. Very good. And uh, finally, before I let you go, any uh, a website that folks want more information about what you're doing? Do you have uh, any information like that? Yes, you can look us up. Uh, we are the Art Institute of Chicago Workers United, AIC Wu. Uh, we do have a website. I believe it's AICWU.org. So AICWU. Look us up. Look how you can support us. And uh, thank you so much for having me here, Ben. I, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And uh, as I said, there's uh, I may bring you guys back in a couple of weeks because I I do believe this is the future of the union movements in, in our country. Uh, the the Art Institute, it's about time. The Art Institute organized. I'll just leave it there. All right. Thank you very much, Anna. Talk to you soon. All right. Have a happy Thanksgiving with your family. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Thanksgiving, everyone. Take care. That's Anna Foyer uh, from the Art Institute. They're forming a union. And now we're going to shift gears uh, to Jim Coogan. Uh, Ace Attorney Jim Coogan and Jim, uh, you and I have been planning this show for a while. First of all, welcome back, Cotter. Welcome back to the show, young man. Good to have Good you back. To be here, man. Good to be here. Good to see your face. And um, so uh, I did the show on Friday. I was doing an interview with uh, Ramana Hussein. I think I may have told you this when the verdict came in. Uh, and I, I must confess, Jim, I was very upset by the verdict. I couldn't hide uh, how upset I was. And just this basic fundamental point, we'll break it down. I'm gonna, and, I, and I promised I would be dispassionate and as analytical as it could possibly be. 
uh, Jim, with this conversation with you. I said that at the outset of the show today. Uh, but just on a more fundamental level, the notion that a man could go to a riot with a rifle and kill two people and walk uh, really it was really hard for me to take. And just I start with that. We can go into many different areas from there, you know, to talk about uh, the victims. Well, we're not even allowed to call them victims. The people he killed. Uh, and, you know, they were leftists, so there's bias there, et cetera. So we take this in many different directions, how it was politicized. But I, I would like to uh, focus as much as I could, as I can with you, on just what happened in the trial itself. Because so many observers here uh, in Chicago, uh, Jim, have they watched the trial and they and they 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 emerged by saying there is no other verdict in their opinion that the jury could have come to other than acquittal. If you just separate everything um, from that trial, just all like who Kyle Rittenhouse is, who uh, Rosenbaum and Huber are, who he killed. Doesn't matter. Just separate and talk about what that jury had in front of them. There's no other decision they could have, a verdict they could have had. So why don't we just start with the trial itself? And I'll just start with the most general question. You will take it to the specifics. Um, do you agree with that assessment that uh, some observers have had that there was no other verdict that they could uh, you could reasonably expect from that jury? Wow. Uh no, I don't think, I mean, it seems to me that anybody who watched, uh, and I, I will confess, I didn't see every minute of it, um, just like you've got other things to do, and, and it is very fascinating to watch some of these trials when they're streamed like this, and you can watch the in-court action, which I think is good for people to see how trials actually occur, that it's different than where it's dramatized in movies and television. Um, but if, if you did watch some of it, particularly if you saw the defendant's testimony himself, direct testimony, cross-examination, and then looking at the way that the, you know, if you couldn't see each of the witnesses testify, sometimes you can at least get some information from closing arguments. Although, as any lawyer will remind a listener or a viewer, closing arguments can still be I mean, they are arguments. So, you know, they may leave out some salient material facts that if you watched every minute of it, like the jury is charged with watching and sit through every minute of it, you still might get a summary version that might distort things a little bit. And if you only watched one side of the closing argument, you'd be certain of facts that with more context, you might actually think, oh, well, wait a minute, that's not really true. So that's a long-winded way of saying, to, the truth is I think that a jury could have calmed down with convicting Mr. Rittenhouse on at least one of the murder charges. Um, I think if they, if they decided to acquit him on all charges like they did, or if they'd convicted him on all charges, I think either one would have been a reasonable outcome. I don't think it's, I think it's far too extreme to look at the evidence here, um, particularly, and I, I mentioned this to you when we were preparing for this, it's important to look at what the jury instructions actually say. There's lots of them. It's a really long document. We can't really get that deeply into it in a in a 45 minute podcast episode. Um, 
because even some of the qualifications for what constitutes a reasonable use of self-defense, um, even that, they change depending on which instruction it is. For the first-degree murder counts, uh, the jury is a lot, for all of them, the jury is allowed to decide whether or not what he did uh, was necessary to protect himself. But only for some of them is the reasonableness of his use of force a question. Frankly, I think that makes this a confusing exercise. I don't know if that had anything to do with what the jury's ultimate decision was, but as I was scrolling through it in the beginning, you get a definition of what the elements are uh, that would have to be shown or, I guess, disproven by the prosecution to say that self-defense does not apply. The question of the reasonableness of his force using a gun, firing that gun, you know, for example, instead of just threatening somebody, get away from me or I'll shoot, or retreating but holding the gun on them so that they don't follow you. Any of those options that are something shy of actually firing the weapon, um, that reasonableness question doesn't apply to all of the counts. So even that requires some subtlety and some explanation from the prosecutor um, to try to explain to the jury. Because, you know, just to take a step back from all this, anytime there's a jury trial, the judge instructs the jury as to what the law is. But that process of figuring out exactly what the law is that applies to that case, it's not like there's just a, a book somewhere and it tells everybody what to do. There are pattern instructions and they are supposed to reflect the law, but the, the lawyers for each side have to go through them, present something to the judge, and then there's a lengthy discussion about whether particular instructions apply to that case or how the judge is going to read them. And at the end of the day, even though the judge reads them to the jury, part of our job as a trial lawyer, I don't prosecute criminal cases, but I do prosecute civil cases, you stand up there and you explain to the jury what the heck they even mean. Because, I mean, this thing, geez, it's got to be 40, 50 pages long. And that's not, I'm sure that's not, on 36 pages. It's not uncommon for something where you've got um, as many charges as they had. Uh, same thing for our civil cases. So you're standing up there and you're trying to put them in context. Um, and whether you do that effectively has just as much to do with what the outcome of the case is going to be as the facts themselves. Because, sure, uh, most people kind of just get a gut reaction when they hear a story about whether they some, think someone's guilty of a crime or not. But when you're sitting there and you have the gravity of the judge actually instructing you that you must follow the law, then it, it changes the tone of that. It's not just a conversation with a friend or or, or even a podcast where we're not, we're not deciding the outcome of anything here other than the fate of Western civilization, obviously. But, um, you know, when you're really listening to it, then you have to apply specifically. Do, do the, the pieces over here match the facts that I just heard? And if the prosecutor doesn't walk them through that in an effective way, then they're not going to convict somebody. Mm. You can make a case, uh, to your point, uh, Jim, if you're a lawyer, and people should know this, uh, Jim is a trial lawyer. Uh, you can make a case as complicated as you want, or you can make it as easily understandable as you want. And I've quoted the distinguished lawyer uh, Denzel Washington to you many times from the movie Philadelphia, uh, which I've seen many times. I love it. It's one of my favorite Denzel movies. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, I keep, I've quoted to you in the past, but the, he is the lawyer. Uh, and I believe he's, he's like you. He's a... Um, He's right. He's got a plaintiff, uh, uh, Tom Hanks, who's uh, seeking compensation from uh, the job that fired him. 
uh, and he says he always says his standard line is explain it. So what was it? Uh, now I'm blowing it. An eight year old. I think it's an eight year old can understand. Uh, and that's his character's way of just reducing every everything to its fundamental element. And my sense of this trial is that uh, in part, thanks to rulings by the judge, we'll get into that, is that uh, Mark Richards, the, the defense lawyer, effectively reduced this to a moment. And that moment was when Kyle Rittenhouse was confronted by the people he killed. He reduced it to that moment and then just said, there's no other conclusion you can draw, but that he was defending himself. And the prosecution, either through because of the judge's rulings or for other reasons, could not reduce it to a moment where just by showing up at a riot with a rifle, he was an antagonist. Uh, That's my uh, reading of it. Uh, What's your response? Well, that that line is exactly what uh, Trailer is trying to do, because let's compare it to any other speech that a politician may be giving, or that even a teacher is trying to give in a class. Um, the outcome. Let's talk about. Let's compare it to teaching. You're not just trying to teach to one conclusion if you're teaching a class. You're actually trying to teach those students um, the context of of whatever the lesson is. You want them to take all kinds of things away from it. You're not just trying to f- focus them on one little thing and eventually get them to just make one decision. So it's a different exercise. Or even a politician giving a speech, they, they might wanna, they want one of the general takeaway for you to have is, this guy's great, he's a great politician. But they're probably talking about several different issues. But at a trial, ultimately, you really want them to just winnow it down to just one thing. So yeah, if, if your goal is to do that, then simplifying it is absolutely necessary. You have to start with, you can't be dishonest to, to what's really there. You, you know, start with a level of intellectual honesty, but then bring that down to something where you can really make it so that the jurors, when they go into deliberations, are armed with what they need to say to support your side. That's really what you're doing. I mean, at the very beginning, you're choosing jury selecting jurors you're trying to get people off the jury that you think will hurt your case but once you're stuck with the 12 or 15 including alternates there it's a really specific exercise you're getting to try to get to one thing and i my thought watching this thing was the defense's goal 100 percent was just to make it about the smallest window in time possible whereas if you look at the broader context of everything it's really hard to walk away from this when you start the story with, okay, a guy gets up and decides he's going to go to a place that he knows is fraught with danger and violence and property destruction. And he gets a gun and it's not his gun. And he's actually not really supposed to have that gun and takes that to a place where he knows people will react with hostility to the fact that he's toting a gun around and then he doesn't even really have a specific purpose. He's protecting property, but maybe he's also going around offering medical assistance, but maybe he's also going around trying to make sure that people don't destroy other property far afield from where he was originally supposed to be. And there's not even a clear evidence that he was even asked to be there in the first place. I mean, you, you, if you expand 
the viewer, the viewfinder to that whole thing, it seems like a completely unreasonable, dangerous thing. But if you winnow it down just to a moment where somebody's reaching for your weapon in a crowd and you're worried that if they get your weapon, they're going to use it on you, then, yeah, it's an easy decision. So th- that was one of the, the uh, that's one of the pulls that, between the prosecution and defense where the prosecution is trying to widen it, defense is trying to narrow it. Um, and I don't know if they did a really good job of, of I know, how, I mean, I watched a lot of it. So you saw the, some of the same things, Ben. They were focusing on his activities leading up to that moment, asking questions about ammunition and different types of ammunition and showing videos of while he was near the, the car lot. Um, I had other thoughts, though, once I looked at the instructions towards the time when, when the closing arguments were going to start because I was kind of thinking to myself, I wonder if this is actually a, an effective presentation to get the jury to convict if that's if you're on that side, if you're examining the, the prosecutor's strategy, um, and I can get to that in a minute, but yeah, I, I agree with you that from the, from Mr. Richards' standpoint on the defense side, if you can reduce the decision making to that small window, and you're not incorporating anything that led up to that point, then it makes the jury's job a lot easier. All right. Uh, let's talk about the prosecution strategy and how it was uh, limited if, or affected, you know, being as dispassionate as I can, uh, by the judge's rulings. Uh, and so uh, one standard strategy uh, prosecution, I've seen it again from afar following trials uh, is to heighten the sense of loss. Uh, uh, in this case, two people were killed. Lives were lost. There's a loss. Uh, and uh, that impacts a jury. I've seen that happen. I've followed trials from afar in Cook County for many years. Uh, from the get-go, or from early on, the judge uh, ordered the prosecution not to refer to uh, Rosenbaum and Huber, Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber, as victims. Uh, his argument was that the, the case, this was what the essence of the trial was all about. Uh, if you say that they were the aggressors, then they are not victims. Uh, <laughs> so that talk about that as it, uh, how that impacted the prosecution, just not even be able to call them victims. Yeah. I mean, one of the really fundamental, uh, lessons that trial lawyers learn or that I've learned is, and we've already been touching on this without labeling it, framing your case. So, you know, if, if the case is a situation like this, where the violence has already occurred, there was a whole demonstration going on, some of which led to property destruction, and that's the scene, and Rittenhouse shows up and he's got his gun, and now he's killed two people and, and grievously wounded another. Um, how do you frame that question? He's been, Now he's charged with murder. You, the obvious, I mean, it, it's it's almost self-explanatory. The question is, well, did he commit a crime or not? But that's not really what you do as the, as his attorney, you're trying to frame that case a certain way. So defining who the people were that were involved in the situation, the kinds of people that they were is a pretty important piece to that because it's going to subtly influence how the jurors view the conduct of Mr. Rittenhouse. 
So for the the what you're getting at is if the judge rules that the word victim is not to be used, then it changes how the prosecution has to consistently refer to the other people involved in this. Uh, you know, they're not going to accidentally start calling them instigators. They, so they have to. So terminology is important because framing ultimately is that it's that winnowing down. It's where you're kind of trying to get the jury to see the case a certain way. So if you're trying to frame this case as people in, in the streets in a, in a relatively tumultuous place who didn't deserve to be killed over it, but you're not allowed to say the word victim, then do you, do you, do you have to come up with some other terminology? Do you refer them to them as protesters you refer to them as demonstrators i think they use both of those terms um but even that language can be fraught uh you know if you go back to the the basics here when they were doing jury selection i don't think that was live streamed usually it's not because you've got the identities of the jurors who when it's live streamed they protect it and they keep the camera angles away from the jury box because those people are entitled to be protected unless they choose to come forward after the fact um you'd want to know that that would be a big component of your case up to that point. So once you know that the judge is not going to allow the word victim, because like you, like you're referring to other kinds of cases where self-defense isn't being offered as the justification from the, the criminal defendant side, the word victim is typically the, the, the phrase that's used by prosecutors all around the country, especially in Cook County, everywhere else too. Um, so you, you would want to road test a little bit, even before you got to jury selection, what terminology to use and then see how people react to it. Because if someone's got a political bend and they hear demonstrators, well, then they're thinking it's, you know, one of those leftist agitators. And even that has negative connotations for some of the people. And I'm sure some jurors feel that way. We'll, you know, we won't know until whoever comes out and actually wants to write a book or talk about it after the fact or have a media interview Maybe we'll get some insight into that, but maybe we won't. You never know for sure how, how jurors on one of these high-profile cases is going to want to either talk about it or not. Um, so it, it's a challenge, if you're the prosecutor, to frame that case when you're kind of being hamstrung in terms of what you're allowed to say or how you're allowed to describe these other actors. And there was a lot of evidence of just how volatile and confrontational Mr. Rosenbaum was even before this happened. Although to be honest with you, that that's, that's frankly, I don't, this is this. So here's a great example of where this gets really complicated. If you're the prosecutor and you want to widen out the view of what it was, what Rittenhouse's actions were that led up to this point and implying that he got himself into this mess and it's not fair for him to shoot himself out of this mess. Well, if you widen out the view of Rosenbaum's actions up to that point, he was very confrontational, daring people to shoot him and so on. But the other, the flip side to that is, what does that have to do with Rittenhouse's thoughts in the moment? He wasn't there to watch these other confrontations where Rosenbaum is coming up to people and, and uh, trying to instigate some sort of violence. But if you're the defense, that's, that's actually, you're fine with it. You know, the more that you can talk about who this guy was leading up to that point, it creates impressions in the jurors' minds that never were in Rittenhouse's mind that night. Uh, so it, this is where um, it just, it just kind of highlights the challenge. You know, you hear about this story 
when it happened and you think, well, geez, he must be guilty of something. This can't possibly be uh, the kind of thing that people want to promote because it sounds like vigilanteism. Maybe it's not. Maybe that's not how he sees himself, right? And, and a lot of his fans don't see it that way. But it seems like a really dangerous thing. Then you get to the facts and you get to trying to prosecute somebody for it. And you see how complicated that really gets. Because, again, in the moment, if you're just calling it self-defense, then all the crazy stuff that person did for the half an hour, hour before you met up with them doesn't really matter. But now the jury's hearing about it, and it's probably influencing the way that they see what you did. Yeah. By the way, I, I didn't – you raised the issue of uh, vigilantes. Uh, and I must say, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to keep the politics out of this, but – Rittenhouse's uh, supporters, I, I was just reading about the interview he did uh, with Tucker Carlson on Fox. Rittenhouse, who was very much a Rittenhouse supporter, <laughs> putting him mildly, uh, Rittenhouse supporters openly embrace the notion that he is essentially a vigilante. Their essential argument is that uh, law and order broke down and there was mob rule in the streets of Kenosha and Kyle Rittenhouse was defending America from a Marxist, Leninist, counter, Antifa, counter-assault on all that's good. I'm just telling you what they say. You know, that's their rhetoric. And so in that regards, uh, they embrace the notion of vigilantism. I think Mark Richards has tried to distance himself. He's just a basic basic bread and butter a lawyer and i think he was i've watched his interviews and he seems to be trying to distance himself from that politicalization but they openly embrace it and uh use it as defense going forward that he took a stand and and in in the uh, tucker carlson interview somebody i can't remember which uh personality came on and essentially said yeah they got what they had coming to them and uh so i in general, Jim, I don't believe I believe all high profile cases are political. You cannot leave the politics out of them. I'm thinking in contrast to this one, the O.J. Simpson case, mm-hmm. uh, where it was very political. It was the the decision by the jury was a very political one, in my humble opinion. And I believe this one that just went down is very political. They just represent different p- political views. That's my opinion. Uh, I got to ask you this. You go in court all the time and generally you're like suing, I don't know, a hospital, let's say, or uh, a company that's a faulty product. Uh, have you ever had a judge say that you can't call your client a victim of, <laughs> of like negligence by some corporation or hospital? Have you ever had a judge limit you that way? Well, let me, this will be a window into how I look at cases on the civil side. I don't use that terminology for our cases. So the way that I, and I would, this is, this is stuff that I talk about with clients or I talk about when I'm explaining how we're like in the office strategizing, how we're going to frame a case. Framing is really sort of fundamental to this whole process. People, my general opinion or my impression, having tried to choose who I want and don't want on my juries over the years and hearing these things from other seminars, I don't think that most people want to hear about someone else's victimhood. So different, this is different than if you're talking about, you know, you're a prosecutor and you have a, a person who's dead, they can't speak for themselves at all. So I'm not, I'm, this is different from that. 
But I, the way that we handle our cases, we don't, I mean, frankly, my clients don't like to see themselves that way either. And that's when they're alive. I mean, if they're dead, it's, it's a little bit different, but then the client is going to be a spouse who's been widowed or it's going to be their child. Um, even then I actually would stay away from that terminology because ultimately what we want the jury to feel in those cases is that what they're doing matters because if they just think what's done is done, this person's dead. It doesn't, what else, why would they have any positive motivation to decide that money damages will make a difference in this life? Similarly, if you have a living plaintiff who's sitting there, they don't want to be seen as a victim. They want to be seen as, Hey, I've got these challenges you know, now I'm in a wheelchair or I've got this chronic pain issue or whatever it was, but I've overcome it and I've done other things because of it. And no, I can't play golf the same way that I used to, but I still go on long walks, even if I have to use a walker sometimes. So ultimately um, I stay away from victim because of that. But just to, just to answer your question in a slightly different way, there are definitely lots of motions eliminated to get passed around prior to the initiation of a trial. And some of it is aimed at terminology. In like it would really depend on what the specific thing is. Sometimes a defense attorney might be wanting to limit something that I'm saying, and it doesn't even really matter. Like that might fit the framing that I actually want to go with in the first place. So if a judge is going to limit the way that we can describe something or, or terminology that we could use, it really depends on ultimately how does that fit into the framework of trying to give the jury, hey, here's a thing to be offended by. Somebody's conduct was negligent here. And then here's what you can do about it. That's really what we're trying to do there. Criminal cases are a lot more about, you know, balancing the scales of a wrong has already been committed. Something's already been stolen, a life or somebody's sexual integrity in a, in a sexual assault case or whatever it is. It's, it's something's already been stolen and you're trying to do the only thing that society can do, which is put, put that person behind bars and take away their liberty for some period of time. Uh, but just to, just to touch on the question of vigilantism, because I, you, you, I don't know if you were trying to not talk about politics, so I don't feel like I had to talk about politics. But here's, here's the thought that I have about this. I, on his own, for his part, I'm, I'm not – I don't want Cal Rittenhouse to be in prison. That doesn't really make – that wouldn't have made me feel better – um, personally, the thing that I'm more worried about is what you identified. I'm not so like this in, individual instance is all tragedy all around. This kid's going to have to live with the fact that this happened. If he can convince himself that it was all justified, I suppose that's fine. I think that might be just a psychological defense mechanism and he's being told that it's okay. So he's going to believe that cause he's still only 18 now, I think. But the worst, the, my biggest fear from the very start was if, the, the, if this results in an exoneration, that somebody, lots of somebodies, are going to take the message that this is okay, that if there are demonstrators of any stripe, all you need to do is label them as rioters, and you can go in there guns blazing, literally, and have your own Second Amendment solution to a First Amendment problem. Because... Uh, if, if, if what you're saying is true, and, and maybe I haven't watched enough of this coverage, that's the kind of disturbing stuff that I was worried about, knowing that this trial was happening and knowing that, that he could either be convicted or not. And frankly, I'm not even sure if a conviction would have dissuaded people who want to see him as a hero. So I don't know if it would have made any difference, but it's certainly worse if people can take the lesson away that the law 
actually allows you and endorses this kind of a con- kind of conduct where you're literally bringing a gun to not a fight. It's not even a knife fight that you're bringing a gun to. There's just people maybe doing some property destruction. And that's what insurance is for. I'm not saying it's okay, but the solution is not to just shoot everybody. At least I'd like it not to be. Uh, that's well put. And, uh, I, you know me, I'll, I'll go down the political road uh, any day uh, for a political discussion, uh, even though I swore up and down that I wouldn't. Uh, but I, I actually just this has been on my mind a lot. Uh, lately, I wrote a column about this just recently. And the politicization of the Kyle Rittenhouse case and the verdict is very much alive. Uh, that defiant rhetoric is alive in the Republican Party right now, controlled by MAGA. And I see it not just in Rittenhouse, but uh, Paul Gozar in Arizona, the congressman who threatened AOC uh, and then defiantly stood up to it uh, for it and, and no apology whatsoever. And was uh, when in the censor vote, the Republicans joined him. Uh, I see that as part of sort of the same movement. And it's in the language that uh, MAGA uses. And now, obviously, it's in the weaponry that they employ uh, and uh, the murders that they commit. And in no cases do they ever uh, stop and say, maybe we went too far. Uh, You know, maybe uh, we were wrong. Maybe we should have done things differently. I see it in January 6th. Individual defendants, Jim, when they come before a judge, say they're sorry and they apologize for the Capitol uh, insurrection because they're facing consequences for their action. But MAGA as a whole doesn't admit anything wrong. They try to flip it uh, around so like somehow they're victims Mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, they're being censored by uh, this repressive Biden regime, which is such a joke. I don't even know where to begin with that one. And uh, so I find the whole thing frightening. And I find it very, again, I say, I, I view it as a political to a political verdict with political consequences. And I don't divorce it from these other issues uh, that are out there, uh, out there that I just mentioned, like what uh, the Paul Gosar censure vote. So I'm with you 100% on what you just said. But even though I said this way, Ben, you know, I, I saw one clip where Mr. Rittenhouse wanted to emphasize the thing that uh, the judge kept saying, I heard in breaks about this is not a political trial. I think closing arguments, his lawyers, Richards might have said it's not a political trial. Rittenhouse keeps saying, well, it's not a political trial. It's not about politics. Where did his defense funds come from? <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, the problem I have with that is you can say that if you want to sort of have this artificial frame but it's just false. He got millions of dollars were donated to the fund that paid for his legal defense. That was politics. That wasn't just people feeling sorry for a 17-year-old. I mean, a lot of times people's reaction is, well, he's a stupid 17-year-old. I'm not going to get He should get whatever he has coming to him. I don't know that any of that would have happened if it wasn't for these other political phenomena that are happening right now. And that's where those that's where those dollars originally came from. There were some opportunistic lawyers that showed up that wanted to make it out to be some other kind of case and, and wanted to file some big civil case. And uh, they were trying to capitalize from the beginning. There's been all kinds of you. I think you've read some of the same stories I have. There's been some weird backdoor kind of things happening from the start with this. And the present team that defended him in this case, I think they actually did a good job from a trial lawyer perspective but they weren't the first lawyers on the scene here for a variety of reasons that were, that I'm kind of referring to. So 
politics, it, it, this thing's been drenched in politics from the very beginning. And trying to divorce it from that, if it's if they're doing that in the in some effort to make it seem more benign, okay, that's fine. But the, it doesn't erase these other dangers that you're identifying. And you know, think of it this way: what if somebody had shown up, seeing all the January sixth rhetoric? Some I don't know. I don't know how much Antifa really exists. I hear about you know the obsession of it in right wing media. I know some people do show up at protests and want to be counter protesters but let's say somebody like that showed up at the january 6th um while the violence was happening and started not a cop but a regular person started fighting or god forbid shooting some of those people would i mean would they feel the same way that this is okay because hey those people were breaking the law breaking into the united states capitol would they feel this this pull to defend them and and think that, that what they did was legal and even though they injected themselves into a dangerous situation that the use of force would justify because who cares about how they got there? They felt threatened. Yeah. I, I really don't think that that counter narrative like that wouldn't be happening. Oh my goodness. No. And, uh, and I, you can't even compare the left and the right in this point. And this is something else that really irritates probably more than anything. Alana, I read, uh, uh like the the far left and the far right are tearing our country apart, and I'm like, why are you throwing the left into this? <laughs> you know, I I don't know anybody uh, in elected office representing the left who stands up for. Well, I don't know anybody in the left who committed murder this way. You know what I mean? I, I view it like the rioting that took place in the aftermath of George Floyd's. Uh, the killing of George Floyd by the Minnesota uh, Minneapolis police. I, I don't know of any rioter whose defense lawyer has tr gotten a guy off. I, I, I would need to see the case. I can't think of any like coordinated effort by people on the left to raise money, to turn people who were smashing windows in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder. I've not seen any effort to turn them into uh, heroes. So to like you create a, a boogeyman on the left that doesn't exist and use it against a, and give it the equivalency of a very real threat on the right, which is like the entire Republican Party. They can't even censure a congressman who threatened the life of another congressman. And I'm like, this is not this is definitely the definition of a false equivalency, I would say. Uh, and so. You know, Jim, I keep trying to go back to my dispassion itself, but it's such a political issue. And the Republican Party is so aggressive uh, in how uh, they're arguing their political issue and what they're demanding their freedoms and liberties are. And you're absolutely correct that it could just imagine the rhetoric that would be coming from Fox News if the example you just uh, laid out were the case. And thank God it wasn't the case. I don't want, I mean, look, that's the thing. I don't want to see that. I don't want to see the, no matter how outrageous what happened to George Floyd was, burning down a police department wasn't a positive thing. That didn't accomplish anything good. I don't want those folks who destroyed property there to not be held criminally liable like they should be. That's the point. I don't, to me, it's not a political thing at all, right? I, I think that you should be able to demonstrate and you absolutely should make your voice heard when you see an injustice. That's a fundamental American right. And if we stop doing that, then we'll be lost. 
Yeah. Breaking things is not acceptable. Shooting people shouldn't be either. So I, I guess I, I, my view of this is kind of apolitical in that sense. I can look at the criminal parts of it and say these are crimes and not somehow justify them based on some broader cause and basically just make excuses. Well, my personal belief, uh, I agree with everything you just said. My personal belief is that uh, the judge had his thumb on the scales. And let's get into that a little bit. Uh, first, we'd already talked about putting the limitation on language with victim and, but allowing if necessary, uh, the, uh, defense lawyer to call uh, Rosenbaum and Huber, uh, rioters or looters, uh, then throwing out the gun charge. Now this one caught me off guard and I'm not a, a lawyer. I only read a lot of law novels and watch a lot of <laughs> legal movies. You are a lawyer. So help me here. I would have thought the time to throw out a charge would be before the trial began. You went through the whole trial. I think that he threw out that charge the week leading up to the verdict. It was relatively late in the proceedings, as I recall. I can't remember the exact day. Do you remember the exact day, Jim? I think it was he, Monday. I think it was like right before they did their closing arguments. Okay, right before he threw out the charge. Yeah. That was one charge. If I'm looking at a jury that's struggling, they want to punish Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, but they don't think it's murder. The gun charge is is their go-to. The judge took it off the table. I read that as an attempt to free Kyle Rittenhouse, to make sure that he would not You've been talking to me a long time. You know how cynical I am with judicial uh, decisions, uh, Jim. <laughs> Help me out here. Uh, throwing out the gun charge the Monday before closing arguments. How normal is that in a uh, in a case? I, well, so I can't speak to how normal that is for Judge Schroeder, um, but I know. So he, the bad news here. Not that I, I don't like to burst your conspiratorial or, or <laughs> bubble, but I think that the legal decision was correct. So I was surprised as well. And there's some really good reporting on the question that not only looked into the statute. So let's, let's back up just for a second. People probably know this, but they don't always think about it. Criminal co prosecutions in the United States have to be based upon something that's in the criminal code and clearly stated before you do the thing that you're being accused of. You can't charge somebody and write a law about what somebody did after the fact, right? So that's, I think ex post facto is an old phrase people might remember from civics class. So the way that this particular, so everything has to be a statute. There, there's a, there are criminal codes in the state of Wisconsin and Illinois that restrict gun ownership or usage of guns or possession of guns that frame exactly what the elements are for homicide. It has to be written down. Mm -hmm. So this particular statute apparently had a couple of different revisions that happened from the nineties on through maybe 2011 was the last time I think I saw that it was changed. And the reporter who was looking into this tried to examine why, if anybody knew, what you know what the reason was that 
the way that it's written, a minor can can cannot possess a variety of weapons, including firearms, except if the firearm is more than 16 inches long. So the best theory that they could come up with, and they even checked with a couple of uh, legislators who were in the Wisconsin Assembly back in whatever year those changes might have been made. Nobody knew for certain, but the belief was, generally speaking, that it was an exception that was carved out to allow kids to go hunting with their parents, and the theory being that anything, a longer gun, not a handgun, because when those laws were written, people were worried about handgun violence in, in urban centers in the 90s, and that was kind of the, the genesis for a lot of the changes in those laws in a lot of states. Um, but then there was, a, a, of course, the countervailing movement to, from gun lobbyists and the NRA to make sure that hunting was promoted because that's a way to get guns into the hands of younger future gun buyers. Uh, so that is how the law is written. So his possession of this gun in his hands at that age of this size of a gun was not in violation of that stage statute or any other statute in the state of Wisconsin. So therefore it was the right legal decision, but you're also asking why did it happen at the last minute? And frankly, I don't know what the answer is to that. Um, my, from what I heard, you know, just so judges will, reserve ruling on things at times that can be very frustrating to the trial lawyer practitioners before them. I mentioned the phrase motions in limine earlier. That's where lawyers are asking the judge to keep out a piece of evidence or bring in some piece of evidence or offer some context to something that the jury should or shouldn't hear about. The idea being that you can't always just wait till the evidence comes up and then object because now the jury's heard a question and they won't hear the answer. And it looks like, you're the one who's trying to hide something when you're the one who objects. So lawyers try to deal with these ahead of time by asking the judge to rule before the jury hears about something. So when judges reserve ruling on those things, you can imagine how frustrating that is because then you don't really know, how do I address this? Do I talk about it in closing or my opening statements? Do I talk about it with this witness when I don't know if the other side's even going to bring this up? Even tougher in a criminal prosecution because, as everybody knows, the burden is on the state to prove the case they don't know that the defense is going to offer any evidence whatsoever because they're not obligated to offer any evidence. So if you don't know what the rulings are going to be and the judge just reserves ruling, it can make it challenging to craft your case properly. You might be wasting your time talking about a thing that never even comes up, or you might fail to talk about something because it turns out the judge allows the other side to bring it up. So this sounds like something, from what I understand, that motion was made long before the date he ruled on it. And for whatever reason, he waited until the last minute to rule on that, which under these circumstances didn't make a lot of sense because it's just a statutory interpretation. It's a simple motion to dismiss from the defense saying, any, no matter what facts come into this case, the, the prosecution won't be able to prove that his possession of this gun was illegal, which mm -hmm. if you look at the gun and you look at the statute, it's pretty clear. So why that ruling had to wait until after all the evidence went in and after the, the prosecutors would have had to decide what their whole strategy was months ago, I will probably never know the answer to. <laughs> well, I don't know absolutely, absolutely answer either. I have my suspicions as I laid out. And finally, there's this. Uh, and get your response to this. Uh, the, phone, the judge's phone rang uh, in the, the middle of a trial. I don't know if you saw this. 
this made the rounds of all the lefty uh, Instagram uh, <laughs> posting sites that I uh, follow. And uh, it was Lee Underwood uh, song uh, that is played at Trump rallies. And, you know, I, I was like, first of all, I was a little surprised that the judge did had his phone on, didn't have it on silence, which is just would seem 101, you know. Could you imagine if the defense lawyer, I mean, if the prosecutor's phone had gone off, how upset that judge would have been? Very upset. Based on his reactions to lots of other things the prosecutors did, very upset. Very upset. Could you imagine, oh, my goodness, uh, you, the decorum of this courthouse, how dare you? Uh, but if <laughs> Lee Underwood. So help me here, Jim. Uh, trying to articulate you're, a you're, dispassionate you're, way of asking this you're, question. You're mixing and matching your uh, pop stars. It's Lee Greenwood. Greenwood, my bad. Yeah, I'm thinking of Carrie Underwood. My bad. I apologize to all the Lee Greenwood fans. Uh, so, uh, and there are many on this show. <laughs> Maybe Dennis, I don't know. Uh, help me out here. Trying to find a dispassionate way of asking this question. This is show judicial bias. Uh, and so just uh, your thoughts about this in general. Go ahead. Uh, it's never, it's never wise to derive too much from these little snippets. I mean, I, I know that one of the other things that happened at this trial was on veterans day, the judge re requested that everybody offer a round of applause to military veterans, but the only, I guess, unfortunate circumstance was the witness that was about to testify that day was the defense's ballistics or video, I guess. Uh, expert and he was a veteran. So I don't, I mean, even that seemed like a little bit of a thing where is this bias or is it just a coincidence that he's patriotic? And I don't know. So it's hard. <laughs> it's very hard to derive too much from those kinds of things. But the fact that it just happens to be God bless the USA, the fact that the cameras all caught it and we had to hear it. Um, I guess I can't fault you for feeling like it's a reason why this judge might have if you look at some of the other rulings and it seemed like he was biased, it's just going to confirm what you're already thinking that you're seeing and reading in the tea leaves there. So I get, I get why you're asking. I know I, I heard the same thing. I had a friend of mine, a conservative friend who called me up and said, well, why are they making such a big deal about this phone ringing thing? So it almost seems like that's, you know, even the, the, the response from, from the right, mocking anybody reacting to this is even, you know, it's even worse. You know, it's, 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 it's calling you a conspiracist for, for even bringing it up as if you're not supposed to have any suspicions here or something. Well, uh, it's okay to call me a conspiracist. I, I, <laughs> I can live with that. Uh, I would, I would, would love to get your, uh, conservative friends response. If I don't know, um, uh, you know, the, the judge in the, uh, uh, the Ar Arbery murder trial in uh, Georgia, his phone went off and they were playing Southern man by Neil Young, which I don't know if you ever heard so this way before your time, but it's a real, it's a denunciation of Jim Crow, uh, and slavery. And it's real angry. And Leonard Skinner re responded with Sweet Home uh, yeah, Alabama. Yeah, so like, around anyhow, right? Yeah. You, you, yeah. So, you know, I'm just curious what, what, what the conservatives would be saying if, oh, excuse me, you got this angry Neil Young go, Southern man, you bet. 
And the, oh, oh, funny that going off in the middle of this trial. So uh, <laughs> I do think if I, and I, I don't understand as much as I uh, respect veterans uh, and love Veterans Day, why it's a trial. I, I mean, look, imagine a lefty judge talking about May Day. You know what I mean? The, how the importance of May. I mean, why are you bringing up? I, it's not a, you know, it's, it's, it's not a public ceremony. It's a trial. It's why are you bringing up Veterans Day? Why, why bring up any holiday? You know, uh, I, to me, it all shows and it, it, I cannot divorce it from the lot from the get go. I said, Jim, it's a political trial and I can't divorce it from the larger effort to make Kyle Rittenhouse a defender of precious American values and Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum violators, instigators who are trying to bring down America. And to me, it's whether it's just sheer coincidence. My mother always told me not to believe in coincidence, Jim. Um, or not, it sure, it sure um, constitutes a general theme is, I guess, the most dispassionate way I could put it. Well, look, here's the response I would have to that, because th are, those are all valid points. In the best of circumstances, the American criminal justice system operates as, as uh, independent from political considerations as you possibly can. In the best of circumstances, in the most ideal circumstances, you've got folks working for the Department of Justice, prosecutors across the country doing their jobs and administering justice in a way that's fair and that people feel like is doing justice. Because if that breaks down, everything else breaks down too. But that's an ideal. And to pretend like these trials really do happen in some sort of vacuum, devoid of context and are not being administered by real human beings with all their biases and all their prejudices and all the, all the realities that we learn as we, you know, the more you get educated in this world and you, especially if I can tell you, you're a journalist and a political commentator. So you're dealing with real things all the time and you see human nature. Same is true in the law. You see how people behave pretending like it's all just sort of happening in a vacuum is it's just too naive to take seriously. It should still be the goal, right? And and I don't, I don't, I take that very seriously as an observer of the political system and the justice system, criminal and civil. But it's also fair to look at, okay, well, given the fact that we are not just robots and judges are not androids in black robes, making rulings that are perfect somehow. That's just not how it is. Mm -hmm. Given that that's the reality, it's fair to. I think the point is we still. I guess you're doing what you can do here. You're having your commentary about it. You're making your observations about it. You're allowing other people to judge whether they're valid or not. And, and you aren't obligated to just throw up your hands and say, well, the jury made their decision. That's it. No, I don't, I don't think that's, that's not how human justice would work anyway. Yeah. You know, we, we, a jury makes their final decision because things have to end at some point. But that conversation continues as to whether or not this was still uh, a reasonable administration of justice. Does it feel like justice? That 
gun statute should be changed in Wisconsin. I mean, if they want to make some carve out some exception for hunting while being in, observed by an adult over the age of 18, super. But it should not allow somebody to walk down the streets of Kenosha with an assault rifle if they're not even 18 years old and they don't own a gun and they have no license to have it. That seems crazy. So that part of the conversation should absolutely continue. And whether or not this was justice for other reasons that seem like uh, I know your uh, your neighbor – I forget his name was talking about it last week and referred to this as a, a show trial. I don't know sure. if it's as extreme as all that, but I mean, there were things about the way the prosecution framed their case that I had criticisms of. I don't think it's because they threw the case, but I think that they could have done it. Once I read, like I said, reading the jury instructions, it's all that really matters. You start there, you figure out what do you have as far as facts, and then you build the case from there. And I think that if they had really looked at that, they might have spent more time focusing on the reasonability of his decisions in the moment. Because if the jury's going to let the defense win that argument and frame everything down to this little small aperture, then you can fight on those terms and you have to focus on, okay, even if, even if somebody's reaching for your gun, if they're six feet away from you, do you have to pull the trigger? Can't you just aim it at them and see if they back up, especially if they're not holding a weapon? They could have spent a lot more time on that and cross-examination with him. Yeah. And I think they did. And that might have at least shown the jury that there's another pathway to convict him on those charges. So yeah, I, uh, your point is very well taken, though, and that is that uh, if you define it, if everything comes down to the reasonableness of his decision, that's a victory for the defense off the bat, right off the bat. I mean, if that if you're if you just distill it to that, Jim, uh, and take everything else out, uh that's I almost feel sorry for the prosecution in this particular case. Um, we've run out of time. I just have to tell you this. Uh, first, thank you very much uh, for uh, explaining all this. Uh, in addition, to, I've been doing a lot of talking about the Malcolm X case in New York, and I urge you to check out that Netflix documentary about uh, Malcolm X. And um, it's a conversation for another time. I will need someone to explain to me <laughs> how, how, how that um, those two uh, men who were wrongly uh, 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 convicted, charged, could be allowed to stay in prison for 20 years each about, uh, even though the other defendant in the trial I said they had nothing to do with it. You know, that, and, and the two came, uh, boom, boom. Uh, the Malcolm X exoneration in New York, uh, Jim, happened, I think, the day before the verdict, uh, or a couple days before the verdict. And uh, just coming back to back has really uh, shook my uh, faith uh, in the fairness of our criminal justice system. So I urge you... Um, to check out have you seen that documentary yet by any chance the Malcolm no, X I started documentary? reading about it after I saw that news and I some tweet I saw I thought was pretty clever like how does Netflix understand this case better than than the FBI but I yeah, yeah I have to I do have to watch it it's something I haven't seen yet it's it's fascinating I urge you to watch I know I've given you a couple of assignments like the impeachment trial the the, the Ryan Murphy uh, uh, impeachment I would put watching the Malcolm X documentary ahead of ryan murphy's 10 part 
story of, of Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. All right, Jim Coogan from uh, Dwyer and Coogan. Thank you very much for taking the time to explain this. I uh, appreciate it very much. Always my pleasure, Ben. Happy All right. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family, uh, Jim Coogan. We'll talk about the White Sox some other time. We'll stay away from sports discussion. Uh, and so I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. I want to thank uh, my first guest, uh, boy, Anna Foyer, did a great job of uh, the Art Institute employees who are trying to organize a union at the Art Institute. And I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, who's back home in Alton. Uh, and uh, as uh, Jim Coogan uh, and Anna Foyer will tell you, uh, back home at Alton, they call him Dr. D. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Everybody.